The story is told by a fellow by the name of Mark Iaconelli. And Mark was a, a speaker and he did a lot of youth conferences. And he told a story about his two sons. And he was trying to, uh, always, 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 getting them ready for school. And getting two boys ready for school has a lot of problems that go along with it. But he always ended up noting that, that one of the boys in particular always ended up running toward the bus. So he started paying attention to the process. Like, what do I need to do? I start earlier? Do I need to have things laid out? What, what's, what can I do to improve this, to make this better? And what he started noticing is that his youngest son, Joseph, was just very slow. And he would take forever to pick out his clothes and put them on and get ready and go get all, you know, hair brushed and, and teeth brushed and books together and head out the door. And then when he had the backpack on, he would head out the door. It wasn't a, like he went immediately. He would, he would walk as he went along. If he would see a cool leaf, he would just stop and he would get down and he would pick it up and he would kind of look at it. And he'd marvel at it, and if he really liked it, he'd put it in his pocket, and he'd keep on going, and he'd walk a little ways, and he might find a cool rock or a turtle or something like that. He was just always very slow, very tedious, very... And this frustrated his dad quite a bit, Mark, who was telling the story. And it finally kind of got to a point where he was just like, he was always telling his son, come on, come on, come on, come on. No, I know. It's cool leave. Come on, let's go. we got to get to school. But it frustrated just as much as it did the father, the son, Joseph. To a point where one day he told his dad, he said, Dad, at school today I made a new club. The name of the club is Slow Club. And anyone, anybody that wants to can be in slow club, but there's only one rule to slow club. You can't hurry. You can't be rushed. You take as much time as you want. And, I thought, you know, he would use that to talk about our connection with God. We are in a hurry, hurry, hurry world. We've always, as human beings, sort of got in that where we're hurrying along to the next thing. And missing out on whether it's God's creation or a simple blessing from your children. We're in so much of a hurry that sometimes we miss the big picture. Uh, if I could tonight, uh, I'd like to label Sunday night Slow Club. You all are all members. I hope you don't find that too insulting. But this year, I want to do what the Psalms encourage us to do. Uh, Psalm chapter 1, you probably know Psalm chapter 1, but if you don't, turn in your Bible. Psalm chapter 1, it's the very first. And the word there says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight... Is in the law of the Lord. The word there, as I studied it, means like when you when you think of when you get your favorite dessert. I don't know what that is. Made by the person who makes it best, your wife, your mother, your mother-in-law, etc. And they set it before you, and you get that whatever it's piece of pie, a cake, a favorite dessert. 
and you just want to savor every bite. You don't want it to end. So you slow down and you savor the taste. That's what delight here is. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. Um, the word I like to use there in describing that is marinade. You get your, your meat out, and if you're, however you're cooking it, and you marinate it, you just cut it just right, and then you allow it to just soak up the juices for a while. And you can't rush that process. Let your mind marinate in the law of the Lord. That's what I want to do this year as we are on this journey with John. Um, that journey is going to be different than what I'm used to in doing a sermon, or a sermon series for that matter. This is my attempt at a textual study, which was in overwhelming demand. Again, two or three people. Um, and if you hate it, I'll give you their names. But my goal is to not focus on getting every blank filled in on your handout. Okay? If we get through the handout, great. If we don't, I can reuse it again. But my goal is to initiate Slow Club. To let us savor every morsel from the book of John. And we're going to go through it sometimes word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, and meditate and let our minds marinate on this very unique gospel. So, I hope that you'll enjoy Slow Club. For those of you type A's, I'm right there with you. It, it takes a little discipline to do it. To stop and to slow down and savor every bite that comes from the mouth of God. Let's turn to the book of John. This is, in every way, a very unique gospel. Uh, we'll look at a lot of different characteristics, and I don't intend to spend too much time, but as we do begin, you know, the Gospels are called the Gospels, the good news, but they are each biographical accounts. And sometimes if you're reading a commentary or if you're studying, you'll see the word synoptic, uh, which is one of those $5 words theologians and preachers like to use. The word simply means they're one eye. Now, the Synoptic Gospels refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are because they are very similar in how they're set out and in the timeline and in the perspective and the detail. But John, John sits out here a little bit different. That's why he's sort of always been my favorite of the four. Because he has a very unique way of writing. And that unique way, by the way, is not, it's simple, and yet at the same time, it's profound. It's simple enough that children can understand it, and yet profound enough that even uh, the greatest minds can spend a long time chewing on what John has written. The title, of course, I'm sorry, the author, of course, we would say is John. Of course, John does not actually identify himself by name as the author in the book. He simply, when referring to himself throughout the text, will say, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a beautiful way of being very humble, 
saying, sort of saying, the focus here is not about the author. The focus is on the one who I'm writing about. Uh, it has some unique characteristics. Uh, we've said heavy theology in simple language. Um, when you do any study on your own, if you're looking for insights into Scripture, people who have studied it at far greater depth than you have, they kind of fall into two categories. That is one of two extremes, either overly complex and overly deep and understandable only by the scholars or terribly simple. Great ones take the deep and profound and make it simple, make it easy to understand. And the more you chew on it, the more you think, that's really true. That's very insightful. This is what John does. Uh, in fact, the first 18 verses are so deeply theological. Uh, we, we can just spend a great deal of time in those first 18 verses. There's a large amount of teaching on the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a very emphatic role in the, uh, the time that John takes to describe the identity of Christ. The seven I am statements that are found in John. And of course, not just his identity, who he was, but also his purpose and what he came to do. Um, there is a very clear purpose, and that is the very end of the book. Now, I'll go ahead and spoil it to, for you. Um, John chapter 20, verse 31. 30 and 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing, by believing, you may have life in His name. The whole purpose of what John sets about to do is really to point toward Christ and to call us toward faith in Christ and to very clearly give who He was and what made Him different than every other Jewish rabbi. The theme is, as we just alluded to, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That would probably not surprise anyone on a Sunday night crowd. But um, as John looks at it, he is very purposeful and intentional almost in every single story about pointing to the divinity of Christ, Jesus as the Word, Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Son of God, the salvation of mankind, and to... Accept or reject him on the merits of the testimony. As we start out tonight, I want you to imagine the Christmas story. Now, what you think of, of the Christmas story uh, without any of the elements or the people of the Christmas story. No manger, no stable, no baby, no shepherds, no wise men. The entire story is told without any of the elements that we normally see. And yet, uh, John's version of it is no less important and um, simple enough for a child to understand, and yet very, very profound in how he writes it. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 1, and let's slowly, methodically, go through our journey with the apostle whom Jesus loved. In the beginning... John says, was the Word, and the Word 
was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, in the beginning, of course, uh, is a well-known phrase that takes us all the way back to Genesis. But it's not, it, it seems to be a familiar phrase that John uses. If you turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, in the next letter written by John, he says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. It was so much more than just saying that Jesus was the word. Matthew and Luke begin with genealogies. They point to back to who Jesus was by, by tracing his lineage all the way back through Mary's line and Joseph's line. All the way back to Abraham. All the way back to God. John goes even before the creation story. In the beginning goes all the way back to Genesis itself. Genesis 1 and 2 are the core. But verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis tells us that the, that the Godhead said these words, Let us make man in our own image. He was right there. At the very outset, the very beginning, before even the beginning of you and I and our story. Jesus was already in existence before, uh, already in existence rather, when everything that exists came into existence. Jesus is not a created being. Uh, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, several religions teach the lie that Jesus was a created being. And that's simply untrue if you believe the words of Jesus. John 8, chapter 58, he testified to himself, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, either that's true or it's not. As C.S. Lewis said, he was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. It, John goes on to say, he, in the beginning was the word. Of course, that's pronounced in verse 1, saying it three times in the English translation, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, in Revelation chapter 19, as John writes of his vision, he sees and describes the rider on the white horse. And I'm going to start in verse 11. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white throne, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on His robe and on His thigh. He, is, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a beautiful picture. And it's so much better than all the pictures that we try to come after with Jesus. But I love how he says, he is the word. The word, word, in the English, what we see translated there as word, is the Greek word logos. Now, logos was not an uncommon word. Uh, The Greeks even had... Uh, understood what Logos was. They considered it the creative force, the ordering, the intelligent mind of the universe, an impersonal, non, non-personal principle of reason and order and intelligence. Uh, in the modern world, evolutionists very clearly are beginning to see that this cannot stand. This ideology that we've created That it all just happened by accident. There is so much order and design. Everything on the cellular level to the outer reaches of the cosmos shows order and design. People at NASA can tell you where this, uh, this meteor will be 337 years from now. How can they do that without order and design and reason? And so they've started to buy into the idea, well, we're not gonna, not gonna be here, but we'll, we'll give that there's something out there. There's some sort of intelligent design. Well, that gets close, but it's not all the way. The Jews, every time we read in the Old Testament the word of the Lord, this is, gets us to the idea. Uh, the word of the Lord said this. The word of the Lord came to this person. That's what, what we're getting at. We're getting closer to the idea of Logos. The word of the Lord was simply God revealing himself, his person, his nature, his will, his wisdom, and his truth. The word. In the beginning was the word. And what's so beautiful and so lovely is that it, it, it's not just the text. It's not just the jot and the tittles. It, it's, the, it's those words which come from the Word. That when you read the Word of God, you are dwelling, you are coming close, you are drawing near to the Word. Whether it was in this age or it was the Pharisees and the scribes pouring over the word, the whole point of it was not just the words themselves, although they're important, their truth, their life, but they are the word. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following, Apostle Paul writes this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together in in our most Western Christian mind. We have. 
sort of a very self-centered nature about Scripture. And it's natural. It's hard to get away from. You know, you just talk about it in a Bible class or in a small group or even in a sermon. And you get to the point where you say, but how do we, how do you put this into practice in your life? What is God trying to say to you? And I'm not saying there's not a place for application of the Scripture. I'm just saying, be careful that you don't miss the point of the Word. That the whole point of the text is to point to the Messiah. To remind us of Him. That the scripture isn't all about you, but in fact, it's all about him. Some of the greatest preachers have learned this concept that we take what's in the text and take a beeline for the cross. We take from, we start here and we look toward Jesus. And in every story, in every reference, in every page, in every chapter, in every verse, we look for the word in the word. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The, the scripture is so full. In fact, Jesus many times would say, If you don't, how can you read the scripture and not understand who it's talking about? I mean, you know, he sort of wrote it, but it, it was more than just him writing it and breathing it and inspiring it. It was that it was all about him. First Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Oh, I don't stand here tonight and claim to understand the incarnate Word of God. Only to point us back to what John says, that it was always... About him. That all creation, not just you and I, but all creation was about him. That that was the very point and purpose. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, and he, Upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God's word revealed. And everything within the word is Jesus. It, it all points back to that. I made it overly simplify it. But we can miss the point. Sometimes we can study and dig so much that we miss the point of why God revealed the word in the word. Luke tells the story, if, we, if you're following your daily Bible reading, 
This is in Luke chapter 4, so it's just earlier this week. And starting in verse 17, this very interesting account occurs. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, talking about Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Now think about this. My job is a couple of times a week is to get up and say this is true. And here's why. Whether history or, or the scripture itself or uh, apologetics, but in every way, I'm supposed to point back and say, you can trust this. You should believe this. You should act and base your life upon the words of this book. And Jesus got up and said, this is true because it's talking about me. When I get up to read these words, you are hearing them fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah. Jesus only, truly, was Lord, or he was crazy, or he was a charlatan. There, it, but you simply cannot avoid it. The, the word was central to their life. Now, I'm referring to the Jews here, the, the, the Hebrews, uh, the descendants of Abraham. Uh, it was not as if they did not understand the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets for, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So we move back to this idea of permeate. I mean, the, the, every element of their early, especially young Hebrew child's life, was full of Scripture. Not just reading the Scripture, but memorizing it and knowing it verbatim, the very words of the Pentateuch, to let it sit in their minds. Now, you know, working safari for any length of time, you realize that, you know, there's a spectrum of, of bright and not so bright the kids who really get it, the kids who really click, the kids who understand it, the kids who want to grow, the kids who get more, the kids who don't. And among that spectrum in the Jewish world, the best of the best, uh, they took notice of those students. And they were trained and they were honed and they were taken under the wing of a rabbi and they became disciples of those rabbis. And the best and the brightest of those would become rabbis. 
And the best and the brightest of those rabbis would become the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Knowing the word was not the problem, especially in their world. And we may not say that so much about our world, but the word was central to their life. In the story of Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, there's this wonderful story. We don't get much about the childhood of Jesus, but we get something from Luke. That at age 12, he was amazing those whose lives and minds were dedicated to knowing the word of God. Now listen to what Luke says. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. Verse 46 tells us that after three days, his parents found him in the temple. Sitting among the teachers. Listening to them. And asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is a little personal to me because here in less than a couple of weeks, I'll have a 12-year-old son. And as we read this as a family, Tyler said, wow, that's amazing, Dad. I'm nowhere near that smart. Jesus must have been a really smart guy. I said, yes. But he sort of had a leg up because, you know, he wrote all that. But to imagine this 12-year-old sitting and discussing with the best and the brightest minds who knew the word inside and out, and yet he left them with the same attitude which we have when we consider the Christ. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He wasn't just any boy, of course. He was the living, the incarnate word. The son knew the father. The son had always been with the father. In fact, he goes on to say, um, why did this surprise you? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house or to be about my father's business? His whole purpose of his life was to put this in the flesh. That we might see it. That we might behold it. That we might understand it. Not from the terms of a textbook, but it, to, to see a human, a, a man, live out the word of God. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus Christ was truly the first full man who was ever in existence. He was unmarred by sin. He was perfect in every way. Filled with the knowledge and the word of God. John reminds us that there was more to the word than just the words. It was central to life. And that's what, of course, Jesus became when he dwelled among us. He wasn't just the book. He was living, breathing, active, and present word of God. He was life, not just physical life, the word being bios, but he was zoe. The, the broadest term, the, the biggest term that they could come up with for the very essence of life. He wasn't given life. He contains life within himself. He is life. John 10.10, 10, I, I have come that they might have life and life more abundant. And I, that's not, I've heard some people say, well, you become a Christian so you live a good life. That's so, it just barely touches the hem of the garment. 
When with Jesus we can have life just as his work, just as his breath breathed into Adam life, his word, which is God breathed, breathed in, breathes into us a new kind of life. John chapter 11, verse 25. He's, he's sitting here with Martha, who's just lost her brother. And he's going to unleash the word on her in a way that she can't fully understand. I think she's always just thinking, and rightfully so, about her, her brother Lazarus. But he looks her in the eye and he says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. When I had the occasion to preach a funeral at a, a Christian, a beloved brother or sister in Christ who's gone on to their reward, sometimes I will say something to this effect. Do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged and think that the one who is gone is dead. They are more alive than they have ever been. But it doesn't just take death for that to happen. It, it comes to all those in whom is the word. Because these words are life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says in John fourteen six. No one comes to the Father but through me. You think in the garden... In the garden, of course, we think that there was just the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there were two trees. I never understood why in the world we gave up the first tree, tree of life. Jesus isn't just the life. He, his life is the only way for us to have life and life abundant. That's what John goes on to say in chapter 8, verse 12 of the book. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's not just, I mean, I mean, I do believe that Christians who abide by the word and meditate on the word and let the word become central to their life have a number of blessings. But I don't think it's just about that. I think you will be a fuller person, a deeper soul, more lively Person, not in personality, but if you will let Jesus seep into you, you'll have life like you cannot imagine without him. In our world, life and light, of course, are connected, but they're different. Life is one thing, light is something else, but in John eight twelve, they fuse together. As we've been talking about with our theme this year. Life is the principle. Light is the illustration of it. The life of God in human form in Jesus becomes the light of men. We'll turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. I'm going to start in verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son 
does not have life. Uh, May his word be central to our life. But may the word be the source of our life. And um, I think we'll stop there. That's a good stopping point. I see several eyes closed. I'll assume you were in prayer. Um, but, but may we not forget that, that John wants us to focus not just on the Word. Good catch. But on the Word. And in Him is life. And that life is the light of men. Uh, tonight, I, of course, offer you the invitation of the opportunity to have life and to know life. And I pray that if you haven't taken that first step on the journey with Jesus, I want to challenge you and I want to call you to begin tonight. You can begin by having faith in Christ and putting him on in baptism. But if you are in Christ, I want to challenge you to know Christ. This is the most important thing and what will truly give us life. If you need life and you're ready for it, come as we stand and sing.